This is the Langpreneur podcast where each week we interview experts in the language learning industry who will show you how to turn your passion for languages into a profitable online business so that you can create an independent career doing something you love. I'm your host, Jan van der Aan. Hey everybody, this is Jan, you're listening to the Langpreneur podcast. Good to here because we have a brand new episode for you today. Um, Let's start off with a question. Have you ever thought about writing your own book? Because that's what we're going to talk about today. We're talking to Scott Young. He's the author of the Wall Street Journal and national best-selling book, Ultra Learning. And he's also the founder of the blog, scotthyoung.com, which he started all the way back in 2006. Now, Scott mainly writes about learning, productivity, career, habits and he also covers the topic of language learning some of the projects he completed for his blog was the mit challenge which involved learning mit's four years computer science curriculum in only 12 months and instead of going to mit he actually used the free resources available online now we also did a project called the year without english and uh, yeah on that challenge he basically stayed in four different countries in one year where he learned four different languages so in this interview you're going to learn how scott made blogging his full-time job um should you focus on blogging in 2020 and beyond and why your content doesn't get picked up and what to do about it we're also going to talk about if you should or should not become an author because it's not for everybody but we're going to talk about more. We're going to talk more about that later in the actual interview. Before we start with the interview, let's first go and thank our sponsor. How much faster could your language business grow with expert help? Do you ever get the feeling that you're not maximizing the potential of your language business? Or maybe you're at a point where you feel you need some expert help catered specifically to your circumstances. If the answer is yes, then you're in the right place because we offer a small number of clients the chance to work with us on a one-on-one basis. When we take on new clients, we have one goal to help them increase the profitability in their online and language business. And in fact, we only take on clients who we are confident can earn back what they spend on coaching with us within the first three months. Now, we work with Langpreneurs in lots of different ways. Some of the ways we have successfully helped people with in the past are some of the following things. For example, discovering the holes in your business and fixing them to instantly generate more monthly revenue. Uh, getting clarity on your current situation and creating a killer business strategy based on your personal ambitions, creating engaging sales funnels and increasing conversion, creating a strong future-proof brand that stands out from the competition and also think about things like high-converting product launches. If this sounds like something for you, then go to langpreneur.com forward slash coaching and join the waiting list. We will email you when we have a free spot. Again, langpreneur.com forward slash coaching. Okay, welcome back. Now let's get started. Here is my interview with Scott Young. Hey, Scott, welcome to the Langpreneur podcast. Um, Please take a few minutes to introduce yourself and tell the people what you do. Yeah, thank you for having me. My name is uh, Scott Young. I've been uh, a writer online for 
uh, over 14 years now, and I've been doing it full-time for almost a decade. Um, I have a blog, scotthm.com, where I write about language learning, among other things. Uh, I would say I write a lot about learning in general, so I, I've sort of, I guess my claim to fame, if there is one, would be I do sort of learning projects that are kind of interesting. So I did one, which I called the MIT challenge, which was learning MIT's four-year computer science curriculum over 12 months. Uh, but instead of going to MIT, using the free resources they provided online. Um, I did another project I called the year without English, where I went with a friend and we learned four different languages in a year. We went to Spain to learn Spanish, uh, Brazil to learn Portuguese, China to learn Mandarin and South Korea to learn Korean. And I've done other projects about other topics too. And I write about learning and also how it applies to your career, to your personal growth and just life philosophy and my kind of musings in general. And this has been my full-time job for yeah, almost a decade. Mm, cool. You've also written a book. Actually, I have it here in front of me. Oh, Ultra yes. Learning. Um, yes. Before we start talking about that book, tell us a little bit about that year without English, because, you know, our listeners are interested in learning languages, teaching languages, of course, also in business. And we're going to talk about that yeah. later. But that year without English, how was that? Because, you know, I can't imagine, you know, how it is to not, to not, be, to not be able to speak English, right? Um, yeah, was a so it that. was, uh, it, yeah, it was a very interesting um, trip. And basically what had happened is I had a roommate uh, living in Vancouver, Canada, and I had a roommate and he was going to take a gap year to travel already. And I was working online. Uh, and so I, I could also travel and I prefer to travel with other people than by myself. So we decided, well, okay, we'll, we'll travel together. And then after many discussions, uh, some of which were over beer, um, we kind of started talking about well, what do we want to do? Like what, what kind of trip do we want to do? And um, I had told him a little bit about, I'd, I'd had an experience. I did a study abroad year in France and I told him a little bit about language learning and how it had interested me and how I was interested in learning projects in general for, for writing content for my blog. And so we kind of got this idea of like going around and learning languages. And at the same time, I had the feeling at the time, not a proven idea, but a feeling at the time that my problem when I had traveled to learn languages before is that I ended up building this kind of social bubble of people who speak English around me because my language that I was learning wasn't very good. Like when I went to France, all the people around me, I became friends with spoke English. And it just became hard to really immerse yourself and learn once you even got good enough because you have all these established relationships with everyone that is in this language that uh, you are obviously more fluent in. And I found it a real frustration in my time in France. And so I had this thesis that like, if you could just build the sort of immersive environment from the beginning, it would really facilitate you spending a lot of time practicing and, and learning it better later. And so I thought it would be kind of cool to sort of do both, to do this sort of world trip and then also to do these language learning. And we also decided we wanted to do these kind of like short little mini documentaries kind of showing our progress, but also showing what life was like there and illustrating the places we traveled. And so we did this project and um, the no English rule, I'll, I'll be clear. We, uh, we were, I would say almost perfect in Spain. We had almost no lapses uh, in speaking English. In the Asian countries, we did have some breaks. So I don't want to say that it was like an entirely 365 days without speaking English, but it was definitely 365 days where, you know, probably 95% plus was, uh, was in the languages we were trying to learn. So it was even just 
not even from the benefit uh, point of view of learning these languages, but even just from having a, a very unusual experience that you always look back on in your life. I think it was just a, a very interesting trip. Hmm. Were you satisfied with the results? Like how much, how far did yeah. you get in three months? Yeah, I mean, I feel like fluency is a word that gets kind of thrown around casually and it means a lot of different things to different people. So I always hesitate with that. I would also say that if you focus on conversations, you tend to be um, sort of disproportionately good at conversations. And so I've been in that situation where, um, you know, I, I, I can speak in like kind of a fluent pace with someone. And so they kind of assume, well, you'd also be good at all these other things, but because I haven't practiced them, I'm not as good. So I would say that the this skill that you learned, there's definitely were gaps in what we had learned that would have made it um, uh, so that we weren't perfectly fluent. But I would say that overall, I was quite impressed with the results that we were able to get just using this method. So like in Spanish, for instance, you know, I had a girl that I was dating in Spain, and we had tons of friends, and we were going to movies, and I was reading books. And like living life in Spain didn't feel tiresome. Um, and by the end of it, it felt quite natural. And so definitely from a very minimal point of view of like just being able to travel, it was enough. But I think, you know, in Spain, we were probably getting close to the level that if I, you know, had decided after that, mm, I'm going to stay on and try to enroll in university or get a job here, it would have been a bit more work, but not a crazy amount of work to get to that level. We, we, were, we were reasonably close to it near the end. Um, in the Asian languages, it's obviously there are more work. I did a lot of study in China. I was very dedicated at studying. I did uh, prep before we went to China and I studied really hard when I was there. And I um, even took the uh, HSK, which is the sort of yeah. Chinese language exam. I, I passed the uh, fourth level. So mm -hmm. if people are learning Chinese, they'll have some sense of what that means for my, my proficiency after those three months. And uh, I was able to converse with people and talk but obviously with a language like Chinese there's just so much alien vocabulary that there's always sort of like weird oh you're getting into a situation where you don't know that word or you don't know this and you have to mm. look it up so it's I think it's a little bit harder and Korean I think was probably kind of at the, the lower intermediate level just because having done four of these in a row we were a little bit tired by the time we hit uh, yeah. Seoul and so we studied but I think it was just not with the same zeal we had in the previous countries. So what was the most difficult language for you in this challenge? Was it Korean? Well, Korean, just because of the, mm. the exhaustion of the trip. I think uh, Korean is probably similar and difficult to Chinese. Uh, if you're learning to read and write, Chinese would probably be harder just because of the uh, Chinese characters. Um, but I think, again, you can't discount the sort of, uh, there's the objective difficulty of some language, but then there's the overall social context and your state of mind and your enthusiasm and all those things factor in and, and so the way I'd like to put it is just that um, we were kind of burnt out by the time we hit Korea. And I, I think we did learn Korean fairly well for three months, just not, um, not quite to the level that I, I feel like I had gotten in Chinese. But at the same time, uh, it's, you know, if, if I tell people about this project, they imagine that you'd be burnt out after about two weeks. So the fact that we got yeah. through nine months in three different languages before it really started to feel fatiguing, I think is itself probably a a vote of confidence in, in favor of this method. Mm. What do you think is the biggest mistake uh, that people make when it comes to le learning foreign languages and uh, how can they fix it? So I need to be careful here because this is very easy to overgeneralize. When I'm speaking to people who have never learned another language before, I'm quite insistent that you should do some real communication practice fairly early on. So I'm a big proponent of 
um, you know, scheduling italki, uh, italk i lessons, um, italki lessons. Uh, I never know how to pronounce the name of that. Uh, yeah, the, the, italki I, lessons I, and <laughs> and and actual conversations with people, even if they're simple, because I feel like a lot of people treat language learning in a in a little bit too much of an academic sense that it's about learning vocabulary as and and grammar removed from I'm actually trying to communicate something with you as a speaker. And so I think in some ways that the academic approach makes things unnecessarily harder because there's sort of an, an emphasis from the very early on in speaking perfectly correctly rather than getting your point across. Um, and, and so even, you know, if you go to China and you're trying to order food at a restaurant, you can just say uh, this one, this one, like you don't even really yeah. need to know so there's a certain level of communication that you that that sort of covers over in that approach but also i find that a lot of people i know i don't want to even criticize just an academic approach but a, a kind of a detached approach of learning the language where you're not really using it in a communication situation and so um in my book for instance i talk about how there's enormous research on people failing at what is known as transfer like where they learn something in one context and apply it in another and i think this is true for language learning where often People will buy apps or little programs that they'll use that are like kind of games, but they're not really like how you would actually use the language. Mm -hmm. And so you can rack up a lot of time on these games. And then the question of how well it translates to the thing you might care about, which is traveling in the language or understanding a movie or something like that is a little bit sketchy. And so I tend to emphasize this conversation first, but I think to be more clear about it, it's probably important to stress that, um, it's not just about conversation first. It's about kind of what are your goals? What are you trying to actually accomplish? So I would probably give more nuanced advice if I knew, you know, for instance, that you were definitely trying to learn this language to be able to work and live in that country, but you were living at home right now. Like I might give different advice than if someone were saying, well, I've got a trip to France in yeah. three weeks. What should I do to learn enough French? I think, um, I think that the the one size fits all approach is probably not appropriate, but my general advice is to use the language uh, much earlier than than most people do. Yeah, which is a little bit uncomfortable, especially if if you've never spoken the language before, right? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I think there's, you know, I would say this specifically with this year without English project. The thesis was not even so much that oh, you have to do this full immersion for language learning. Because I want to distinguish kind of a, a sort of a nuanced point since we're in a language podcast environment and people are already used to hearing about theories of language learning. Um, a lot of people take the idea of what we were trying to do to be that, well, you have to be completely immersed, that it's the immersion itself that makes you good at learning the language. And so, for instance, one of the things I didn't restrict myself for was writing in English uh, because that's what I do for a living. And some people were kind of like wagging their finger at me a little bit like, no, 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 this isn't true immersion. Like if you're not, if you're using a dictionary to translate, it's not true immersion. And I think this kind of distinguishes my philosophical approach was just, it's more pragmatic that the forcing yourself to speak in the language is more about establishing a social environment and habits with yeah. the people around you really even than just some kind of puritanical approach to to language learning that when we when i was in france i kind of accidentally made all these friends that spoke to me in english even if they spoke french and lots of people that didn't even speak french and that became this bubble of english around me that made it very hard to break out of and i've seen this happen repeatedly when people go to move to a new country whereas when we went to spain even though our spanish was not very good in the beginning all the people we knew and spoke and spent time with were 
totally used to speaking to us in Spanish. And so it became kind of, that was what was the, the default. And that is what spurred us on to learn. And that's what created more opportunities for practice. And it made it, it made it natural to learn as opposed to unnatural. And so mm-hmm. I think that's important to stress as well, how that would apply if you were learning from home, it might be a little bit different. It might be a little bit different, but I think even the relationship you have with, let's say a tutor can be important because I think a lot of people can kind of, without realizing it slide into a pattern where they speak 90% English with their tutor and then do like really kind of trivial exercises where, you know, okay, well, we're going to just say the same sentence over and over again, back and forth. Mm. And that maybe isn't the best because you're not really using it to communicate. You're just kind of pantomiming the language uh, with this person. Mm. Okay. So you did the year without English. I think it was about seven years ago, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Yeah. Oh my God. I'm feeling old Seven years ago. (laughs) Yikes. Um, that was, uh, you, at the time you were already working online, right? So tell us a little yep. bit about how you started your online career. When did you make your first money online? Ooh, yeah. Uh, so I started writing in, uh, 2006, February, 2006 is when I started my blog, um, and back when blogging was a thing. And it took me a while to get to a point where I was, uh, probably about five years to the point where I was able to get full-time income, which sounds like a long time, but at the same time, thinking back now, I've done it for 14 years. And so I've been done it full time much longer than I've done it part, uh, part time mm-hmm. on the side now. And uh, that was a very different time. I think that's another thing that I can't stress enough is like I started in 2006 when, you know, uh, people weren't using Facebook, uh, people weren't using YouTube, Twitter didn't exist. Like mm-hmm. there, the, the things that you would need to do to kind of build an audience and build a following and build revenue streams are just so different now that like the kind of business that I run now is different from how I started. And, um, the opportunities available to people are quite different as well. So I think at that time, just writing a blog was a, was sort of a a good thing to do. And I think, you know, it it helped me build an audience. Yeah. I, I was in school. I was a university student. So I was writing a lot about uh, studying because that was what was relevant to my life. And that, that ended up becoming, you know, I, I ended up selling sort of a subscription that was offering sort of studying advice to students. And that kind of ended up becoming the thing that allowed me to, to go full time. Yeah. So you were like selling a newsletter or something it was like a membership. People. So it was a membership subscription. Um, basically, people got... I I called it learning on steroids. That was what it was called at the time. Mm. And it was a weekly email and twice monthly, I would give you kind of this uh, PDF thing that had um, like described a particular studying method and how to apply it. Mm. Uh, And admittedly, I don't think I could get away with that exactly now. Um, I think that the, I mean, there are people who are doing newsletter subscriptions, but it was very much a product of its time. It was like, that was the kind of thing people were doing back then. Um, now the, the stuff that I sell, uh, is all multimedia. We have like video audio, like that's just a thing that, you know, uh, yeah. we weren't doing as much back, back then. Do um, you know, so, do you know that, was, yeah, that it was possible to turn your blog into a business back in 2006 when you started? Well, I, this sounds weird to say, but that was part of my intention in starting it back then because I initially got involved in doing it because, I had heard of, and this is again, even a couple of years before my blog started, I had heard of people that ran kind of solo online businesses. Now the people I knew were doing it in software. And so that was originally my idea was that I was going to do like a small kind of software business where I would sell some kind of software. And 
that really appealed to me. I really liked the autonomy of it. I really liked the, the kind of the creative puzzle of like, you just have to make things and then people have to buy them. Like, I, I don't know that, uh, that always really appealed to me um, as a, as a profession, as opposed to, you know, you get a job somewhere and then you agree on a mm. salary. This was sort of, I don't know, there's something very meritocratic maybe isn't the right word, but there's something very like, it is what it is about that kind of business that, I mean, if people don't want to buy it, they don't buy it. But if lots of people want to buy it, then they buy it. It's not, uh, it's, you know, it, it, it's not about like, oh, did you can you go to the right school or did like you convince so-and-so yeah. that you, you're, you're their nephew or something. And so they got you a job at such and such place. Like it, it has a kind of just, you know, you created this little um, ecosystem. And if the, if the people who are in that ecosystem want to pay you money for things they do, but they're under no obligation to do that. So it's not the case that, um, you know, like there's some normal salary you should earn. Like you, it's very easy to earn $5 a month or something like that if you don't do it very well. So I, I, I kind of liked that when, even from the beginning. And I got into blogging sort of accidentally almost because I was interested in doing software and I needed to write. Um, I was going to have this software thing that also had some essays in it. And I was like, I got to get better at writing essays. I'm not very good at this. And mm. so the blog actually started as a way of practicing essays so that I could mm. put them in the software. And then, you know, a few months into the software, I realized that that was a terrible idea, but the blogging started to stick. And that was also a time period where people were blogging and I, I knew of people who were doing it full time. And so it seemed like it, you know, just might be possible just might be the kind of thing an 18 year old kid uh, would be able to do considering I didn't have any other skills or talents that I could apply towards uh, starting a business. Uh -huh. So you started in 2006, it became profitable in 2011. Uh, you had that program at the time learning on steroids. What was yeah. the next step uh, for your business at that time? Um, yeah, so I kind of went through a transition. So I would say that like, uh, around my later college years, I started focusing more and more on learning in the actual, um, in the actual blog. And that became a central topic of mine. And then, uh, I did learning steroids sort of in my last second to last year of university. And so I actually kind of like slid into full time. So I was earning enough money in my last year and a half of college that it was like, okay, I, I can just do this. It wasn't like mm -hmm. I had to have this sudden break, um, where I went from, you know, not being able to, uh, make money and like, okay, I got to scramble to pay my bills. And, and so there, I, I want to kind of make that clear. 2011 is when I, when I graduated and, um, and so I did learn answers and then I, I had all this extra time on my hand. I'd been running this business sort of like while being a full-time student and doing lots of other things. And so you go from having all those other things in your life to just doing it full time. And the nature of what you're doing hasn't radically changed. It's not like you're, you know, I was putting on hold lots of things until I graduated. I was still running the business full time. So I, I had a lot of freedom in my schedule. That was a rare moment where I hadn't filled it up with other stuff yet. And so because everything I was doing was related to learning and around that time, I was also very interested in, um, uh, I was friends with Benny Lewis and I really liked his approach to blogging where he took on these challenges. And I know that, um, the thing I really liked about it was just, it felt very real. Uh, I, I really liked that he was just, okay, I'm going to do this and I'm going to show you while I'm doing it felt to me. It had this kind of 
truth to it that, you know, just, oh, here's my advice, but like I'm talking about stuff that's either happened in the past or stuff that, you know, you weren't there for. I'm just going to kind of like tidy it up and put in a neat little lesson. I really liked that content and I really liked what he was doing. And so that was when I got this idea of like, maybe I could do something like that. And I was also thinking about um, learning computer science. That was also something that had been on my mind. And so I kind of, um, numerous things came together and that's how I did this MIT challenge project, which I started shortly after graduating. It was sort of a full-time project. And then after that project finished, and it had actually gained me some, um, maybe notoriety, but it had gained me a little bit of uh, an audience and people were interested in it. I was, you know, sort of kind of reeling off of that, that I, I talked with my friend who's doing the gap year and we did this year without English project, which was sort of kind of almost, there was a year between and then I did it right after that. So there was a period of about like three to four years where just doing these projects, like I, I kind of ran the same business model, but I was doing these projects and that kind of increased my um, exposure and, and, and increased the size of what I was doing. And then after that, I started working on uh, sort of more serious uh, courses. I kind of sort of switched back onto the business side of things. I did a course with um, a good friend of mine, Cal Newport, who's a best-selling author, professor of computer science at Georgetown University in uh, the States. And we did a course uh, that was sort of following on some of his ideas about learning as it applies to your career. And so we called this course Top Performer. And uh, it was very popular and that kind of kicked off sort of a new phase of my business where um, instead of just me being kind of this person doing this sort of part time and doing weird projects, it became more of a full time business and we had, you know, a small team and we're managing things and um, it, it kind of felt like more like a real business rather than just sort of a side thing that um, that I was doing while I did these projects. Yeah. And that kind of trend has sort of continued to this day. We've done more courses, um, started working on the book that you mentioned. That was about another three years and, and I just published the book. So that's sort of where I'm at right now. So you are a, a blogger originally, at least that's how you got started. Mm -hmm. And you have been doing that for over, well, 14 or 15 years, right? So yeah. what has changed in the world of blogging? Because, you know, 15 huh. years ago, blogging was a powerful tool to to blogging build an audience yeah yeah exactly yeah. What, what do you think like how effective is blogging these days do you still think that people should focus on blogging well or? i don't know I, I there's sort of two senses of the term blogging i tend to use it in the more inclusive sense which is just sort of like writing things online in not for like a publication let's say you know that's sort of the and so given that if you define it that way uh blogging is very much still a real thing i know i know people that have built full-time businesses, let's say off of medium, or they've built full-time businesses where they have, you know, Twitter accounts and, and paid newsletters and, you know, whatever it is, those are all real things. There's blogging in kind of the narrower sense, which was sort of a specific phenomenon back in, you know, those time periods, pre-social media, where everyone had personal websites where they were writing their articles to, and then you found about them through other blogs. And it had this kind of underground feeling where like, there was no repository for the blogs. You had to like find them through other people. And, Oh, this person has their people had blog rules on the side of their blog. So you could find other blogs that that person likes. And so it was kind of a nascent social media thing. And so that era of the internet is kind of over. I think um, not to say that not having a personal website isn't good, but just that uh, these days, I don't know very many people that have built 
an online audience from a personal website that when they build an online audience, it's usually by leveraging some kind of platform. And if they have a personal website or a newsletter or something like that, they're, it's because they're, you know, leveraging audiences that exist on these platforms and bringing them to their website as opposed to just organically their website itself is, is doing super well. And mm -hmm. I think that it's become a lot more competitive for things like search engine traffic and links. Um, you never had to use to compete with the New York times. You never had to use to compete with, uh, you know, these high, um, high Google ranking uh, websites that have articles on literally everything. So it's now, if you, if you don't rank now, it's very difficult to write an article that will rank number one for like a decent search engine term. So I think we're kind of in a different space, but if you look at it largely, like if you look at the overall um, what's happening with, uh, with online um, businesses, I still think there's opportunities. I think just this, the landscape has shifted quite a bit. Mm -hmm. So what do you do today uh, to promote your brands and your work? So uh, we kind of have gone through some phases. So this may not be the permanent sort of settling point of what works, but what, what I have and what has worked for me is I, uh, I write my articles to my blog and, and, and to my newsletter and that's sort of my core. And then we've started to sort of make use of other platforms and other uh, spaces to get that work that we've made out to other places. So like on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, um, we all kind of modify the content slightly and, and post it there as well. Uh, we've, because it's sort of uh, short, you know, medium length essays, um, Medium, the website Medium has been uh, also helpful for us in um, building kind of readers and, and getting new people. It's still nascent, but we're working on that. And uh, as well, like, you know, sometimes we've done a few syndication deals where you work with um, uh, a bigger website that wants lots of content and um, you can sort of work out a deal where your content will appear on their website. And so one of the things I would say that's a slight difference is that the sort of rule of thumb back in 2000, you know, 2008, 2009 was uh, don't, don't post your content too widely because it'll hurt you in search engines. So like if you have an article that's really good and it's about, you know, um, a popular topic people might search for and you post it to someone else's website and then that is the link that gets popular, then they're getting all the traffic and you're going to get hurt by that. And I do think that that's true, but I feel now the trade-off is more that you kind of, it's, if you can't beat them, join them sort of. So you can get more audience that way from being on platforms. Um, and so I, I also see people on YouTube doing really well. I haven't, my mind is more writing than, um, uh, than video. So we haven't done super well on YouTube. Uh, it's just, it's, it's kind of a specialist uh, yeah. media environment, but I think that's is the same sort of rules apply that, you know, if you're just hosting your videos on your own website, you're not going to get any traction. You kind of need to be on a platform where people can discover you. Yeah. So it's really about looking for platforms or looking for people or website with, with audiences that might be interested in your work. And then, yeah. And I, I want to be clear. I think, that the content is what drives everything. Like the, the kind of marketing I'm talking about, the, the most important thing you can do is have uh, better content. You know, like if, if you are doing something that's original and compelling and uh, people can't wait to see it and people who have never heard of you can't wait to click on it, then 
you know, whether you use Instagram or YouTube, like those, those decisions are kind of secondary. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is the number one problem most people have is that it's fairly easy to learn how to set up multiple social media accounts and, you know, post there and like anyone can learn that. Um, what is much harder to learn is how do you make something that rises above? And I think that's particularly true in the language space because you you have so many people who are making content on language learning. There's so many kind of different formats and interesting ideas and even well-heeled companies that are, you know, make professional videos for the language of your choice. So I think someone who wants to enter into that space has to really think about how can I make something that is unique and compelling? And and that is, I think, a harder question to, to face. Yeah. Can you maybe give a few examples of people well, either in the language learning industry or maybe another industry yeah. um, that you think like that came up with something really original that are doing a good job? Like how can, for the people who are just getting yeah. started, how can they, how can they do that? Like what's, how would you do? Uh, yeah. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about it too much when you're starting because the way you get better at making compelling content is by making a lot of content. So there is, don't, don't worry too much about like, oh, well, the stuff I'm doing is not the best yet. You, you have to kind of, and there's a lot of like figuring it out, right? You try different things and then you find something that works for you. But I mean, I use the example of Benny Lewis because I felt like the content he was doing, particularly when he was actively doing these um, language challenges was, you know, it it was extremely compelling, even for people who didn't like them, you know, even for people who didn't like these challenges, Mm -hmm. they couldn't stop talking about them, right? That he was generating attention. And and for that reason, he has probably one of the bigger, um, you know, non-specific language learning websites right now. And I think it's built off of that history of just doing these really compelling projects. Um, I don't know whether you, I don't think you can do what Benny Lewis did now, but I think there's lots of people who are, kind of specializing in something that makes it really good. So I know people not in language learning, for instance, that they, um, they did really well because uh, they succeeded on kind of making uh, the content really sort of readable and, and really good. So they, they worked on their ideas. I know other people that they succeeded on doing a lot of research really well. So they could kind of offer perspective that other people couldn't. And so I think the thing that you want to think about when you start getting into this is that um, if you can get your content up to that top tier, like you can get the stuff that you're making that like, this is as good as anything out there for language learning, then it's only a matter of time, I think, before you get picked up. And if you're not getting picked up and if there aren't, then it's, you know, the problem is usually that you're just not at that top tier. I think there's sometimes people people like to think that it's some kind of racket that like, Oh, well, you know, you just have to know people or like, no, it's not. This is like the most meritocratic environment for success that there can possibly be in some ways it's too meritocratic. It's too driven by like what gets clicks and what gets eyeballs is, and then people optimize maybe too much for that when they should really care about other things. I don't know. But I think that you really can't complain that people aren't watching your video because you know, that, that it is truly the best possible video on YouTube. It's just people, people just don't like it. No, no, no. There must be something that you're doing that's not causing people to want to click on it. Or if you're writing essays and they're not, uh, you know, especially if you're writing them on a platform, like you're, you're writing them, it is possible to just have it on your personal website and it's great. And because no one knows about it, no one will find it. But these days, if something is compelling and it's on a platform where it can be shared and and followed, if you're consistently making compelling content, I just think it's impossible not to succeed. The problem is just that it's very difficult to consistently make compelling content. Yeah. So there's a golden tip here is really to just create good content. 
over and over again. Yeah. And, and that really sounds way too easy, but I think I, I really stress it. And, and good doesn't just mean that there's one dimension of quality that like you're just, you're at 50th percentile, but rather there's lots of different ways that you can make content better that would appeal to different people. And so I know people, for instance, that have really succeeded because their voice and the way that they make content is super personal. And so you feel like you're talking to them and, and you have this relationship with them and that's what you like about them. And I know other people that the, you almost don't realize there's a person there. The, the, the content they make is kind of very impersonal, but it's very good for other reasons. And so I, I don't want to say there's one way to do it, but I think, you know, we definitely live in an, an immediate environment where uh, it's certainly possible to build an audience. Um, but if, you know, but it's very competitive too. So the standards for what you need to write and produce to, to get noticed now, I think are just much higher. And, and that can also be a, a challenge just because, you know, if, if your stuff is much lower, it's also, you don't have as many views, it's harder to get that kind of feedback of exactly what you should be doing. And so I think you have to be really dedicated to just putting out a certain minimum of, of stuff to kind of really get your feet wet and learn what you like and, and how you can make stuff that people find interesting. Mm -hmm. So you wrote this book, Ultra Learning. I enjoyed it. It was a good read. Thank you. Um, what inspired you to write this book? So this book has basically been the last uh, 10, maybe even 15 years of my life. And uh, I started, as I mentioned, kind of not only from really seeing Benny Lewis and and I really liked his style of content, but I really liked that kind of project. And as I mentioned, I've done a few of them myself of just really throwing yourself into learning something and really throwing yourself into um, figuring out what's the right way to learn it. And I think that's a topic that fascinates me because a lot of our focus on learning is it's not, it's not too optimized for like what would be the right way to do this. It's rather what is the easiest way, what's the most convenient way, and this kind of thing. And so I wanted to write a book about learning that if someone were serious about learning something, if they really cared, what would you do to learn it really well? And so I found all these people who had taken on just fascinating projects, people like Eric Barone, who uh, self-built every aspect of this video game that went on to send sell tens of millions of copies. Um, people like Roger Craig, who uh, were uh, record-breaking on the game show Jeopardy because he created like a system for mastering Jeopardy trivia. And just all sorts of interesting people who had accomplished very interesting projects and uh, really threw themselves into asking, what is, the, what is the best way to learn this? What is the, what is the most effective way to, to get the skills that you have in question? And so I wanted to write this book to share, you know, all those experiences and also really to give people the opportunity to see the kind of things that had such an influence on me. You know, if I had not had the sort of chance encounters with some of these people earlier, I might not have gone down the path that I had done and done some of these things like this project, Learning Four Languages. I mean, I, I don't want to say it in, in, in too immodest a way, but I mean, most people when they're planning a gap year don't think of doing this, you know, <laughs> they, they don't think of doing like, oh, I'm going to go and learn four languages. Like no, no one thinks of doing this. And I don't, I, I don't say this to take credit, but because if I hadn't heard of many Lewis, if I hadn't heard of other people who are, who speak six languages, it wouldn't have occurred to me that that was a thing that you could do. And so I want it to occur to people that this is a thing that you mm -hmm. can do, whether it's learning languages, whether it's learning a new career skill, whether it's learning a hobby or a sport. I want it to occur to people that there's just incredible things that are at least possible if you really care about it. Mm. How important is the book for your business? And would you recommend other 
Langpreneurs to write their own book? I would recommend to very few people to write their own book. Um, the book has done well. I'm very pleased with it. It's important to note that the book only came out last August. So I've been doing this business for what, 14 years since the inception and, you know, nine, 10 ish that it's been full time. And it's only been in the, you know, not even a year that this book has come out. So it's, it's important to realize where it's appeared in this journey that this isn't like I'm doing what I'm doing now because of this book. Um, writing a book, I think a lot of people uh, fantasize about it. Uh, they get excited about writing a book. I think if you really want to write a book and the reason you want to write the book is you want to just have a book, then I think you should self-publish yeah. um, just because it gets the book out of you, you know, if you really felt like there was a book you wanted to read. If you want to be a person who's written a book, I think that's not the right motivation to write a book. Writing a book is hard. It doesn't pay very well compared to other things. So if you are trying to make a full-time effort, don't write a book. A book is the wrong thing to do if you are trying to go full-time. Becoming an author is much, much harder than um, I would say, you know, I think you would have more success making great YouTube videos or, and, and that's the kind of thing that, you know, uh, writing a book, for instance, it really benefits from having an ad already established audience. So if you don't already have an audience and you are not, uh, you know, a Harvard professor or a CEO or, you know, a New York times journalist, if you don't already have an audience, it's going to be very hard to pitch a traditional book. That's going to be a non crappy advance. And so I think for most people who, if they're not in that situation and they do have a book in them and they really do want to go traditional publishing for the route, then I would recommend, you know, build that audience first, you know, start writing about the book is, is blog forms and essays and start uh, creating videos about it or start doing whatever you want to do to talk about these ideas because that's ultimately like, if you can't get a blog around the topic, then it's going to be a lot harder to get a book deal out of it. And then even once you get the book deal, it's a really long slog. Um, it's still, even if you go through a traditional publisher, it's still almost entirely on you. I mean, you do have an editor, uh, but you have to do basically all the marketing. If you're going to appear somewhere, it has to be you who, who does it. You have to be the one promoting it. And so another thing I would say is that if you're going to publish a book and it's not just to have a book published, but because you want it to do something for your, for your career, for the, the message that you're putting out, you have to be willing to market the hell out of it. <laughs> um, I think another thing a lot of authors would be authors do is they want to write the book, but they, they think that other people will discover it. It is not. Um, that being said, if you write a book, you have something to market. So if you are keen in marketing yourself, a book can be, a useful thing to get yourself on podcasts to talk about it. Um, I got to meet a lot of people through my book because it gave us something to talk about, something for them to share with their audience. And I think that can be quite useful. Um, I also think that the right way to think about writing a book, if, especially if you're going traditional publishing and you're really trying to do it is think of it as a home run. Um, most books strike out. Uh, I think that the idea that you're just going to kind of, uh, hit a grounder and just sort of limp to first with a book is the wrong mentality. Um, most books do nothing. Most books don't earn back their advance. And so if you're going to do it, you should really, really do it. And if, for me, it was a four year project. So I, it was probably the hardest thing I ever did in my life was, uh, was getting the book written. And so I'm very glad that I put in that effort, but I think, you know, I've talked to people who they have an idea of writing a book, but they're just, they're not serious enough about it yet. And I would say, you know, what? 
just start a blog, make some videos, do some essays. You know, if you, if you really have a book idea there, self-publish, you can, you can easily self-publish these days. And then you can show people your book if that was the reason that you wanted to write it. Mm. Um, but if you really want to get a book deal and you want to become an author and you want to do that regularly, I think um, it's important to take it really seriously uh, because it can be quite beneficial for you and in, in, in your, in your brand, but it's also something that, uh, a lot of people maybe just sort of, yeah, they just think, ah, I'll just try to write a book and I don't want to do any marketing or I don't want to do any uh, yeah. uh, of the hard stuff. So what is the reason you went with uh, for a traditional publisher in the end? Is it for the brand? Because now you are an um, author, not just a guy who published. Uh, no, I, I well, so I think you have to realize what a traditional published book can do for you. Um, I think that for most people, self-publishing is probably better just because they're not going to get much advantage from the traditional publishing. But the thing that a traditional publishing book can do, uh, it gets you distribution. So your book will be in bookstores. So if you are again, swinging for a home run, and it, you really wanted the book to not just be on Amazon, it had to be in bookstores, then that's good, right? You want it to be there. It gives you the opportunity to be in bestseller lists. Um, I don't know of any self-published books that are in bestseller lists, but I'm not the expert in the industry, so there might be exceptions. But generally, if you were thinking this might be uh, New York Times or Wall Street Journal or whatever bestseller, it, it has to be traditional published, like you're, yeah. you're not gonna get that with self-publishing. Um, Similarly, I think if you are thinking in terms of um, this being a traditionally published book, it has a certain legitimacy. Again, I think, again, only if you're home running it. There's a lot of like, there's a lot of traditional publishers that'll give you like, they'll give you a $3,000 advance, but like, it's basically meaningless. They're just giving you a small token amount of money in the rare chance that your book becomes successful. But if you have a serious book deal with a good publisher and you want to, let's say, pitch your book to go on the news or pitch your book to go on bigger podcasts or, or these kind of things, it can be a bit of an in because people take it somewhat more seriously. Um, but again, these are, these are sort of factors that really mostly matter if, if you are sort of like, I'm devoting everything to this and I want to do it because self-publishing, if you're going to do it on your own, you usually, you make more money per book and uh, if you were just selling it to your website, I self-published eBooks before and, and it, it's, you know, it's a great thing to start with if mm. you're, if you're not sure whether you want to do it. I think traditional publishing is probably not right for most people, mm. but, um, but when it is right, I think it, it is, it is the only thing you can do. Mm. Tell us a little bit about your business today, because you have this book, you sell online courses yeah. as well. What else are you doing? Tell us a little bit about. So the majority of the business is online courses. Uh, I have, we have three courses we currently sell working on a fourth um, top performer, which I briefly mentioned, which I, I co-instruct with Cal Newport. I have a course rapid learner, which is sort of very similar to ultra learning, but uh, it's a six week course. It's sort of a guided program for how can you uh, structure your learning efforts to be more effective. And I cover a lot of not only my own sort of opinions and experiences, but research on you know memory and mm. uh and practice and transfer and all these things that i've spent my life uh reading about and uh we also have a, a course called make it happen which is about um planning it's about goal setting it's about setting habits and the idea there being that there's a gap between a lot of what people intend to do and what they actually do and so this course is about understanding yourself so that you can close that gap so you can you know, finish more of the projects you start and uh, actually stick to things that you'd like to be good at. And so we sell those three courses and that's sort of the majority of revenue we make. Um, mm. But 
uh, as I said, I, now we have this book. Um, I also have some eBooks that I sell. Uh, they're also sold in China as um, paperback books. So that mm -hmm. is also a little bit of, get a little bit of trickle of money in for that as well. Yeah. So just to finalize the interviews, like do you have any final yeah. tips or advice for people who want to build an online audience who want to sell digital courses? What are like some of the, you know, yeah. some of the things that you've learned over the last 15 years that you would like to share with our listeners? So I think uh, first advice would be be in it for the long haul. Um, I do this full time now and I, I, I would say I do it fairly well. Like I'm, I'm very happy with how it is. It's not a struggle, but at the same time, even given that it eventually got to this level of success, it was a good five years before I could even scrape together a bare amount to live off of. And I think that's kind of telling that I think a lot of people would have quit in your one, two, four, and then just never would have gotten to this point. And so if you're going to do it, it has to be something that you're willing to put in five to 10 years on the side to do it. And if you're not really willing to do that, I don't know whether you're dedicated enough to do it. If it's just a, it's just a like kind of a fancy that you have, it's not really a, a serious project. The second thing I would say is make a lot of stuff. You'll get better at making stuff by making lots of stuff. Um, the best people I know all had committed schedules of content production. So I think a lot of people I know have great potential, but they stall out on becoming full time because they just don't commit to a, a publishing schedule. Mm. They just publish. Eh, I'm just going to, Oh, I haven't written an article for three months or I haven't, yeah, I was supposed to release something new or I was supposed to do this and this, but it's just getting delayed. You have to be really consistent about it. And then I think the final point is just recognizing that um, to succeed in what we're talking about, you need to have the kind of content that people will want to click on, that people will want to share, that people, you know, who have never heard of you before, that they see what it is, yeah. they will they will reach in on that. And that's a little bit unfortunate because I do agree that that sometimes biases in favor of content that's not the most edifying, you know, clickbait mm. and stuff is not always the best. Yeah. This isn't to say you should make clickbait because there's, Lots of stuff that you can use to get attention. It's not just by having spammy uh, article titles or spammy videos, but at the same time, you need to recognize that if you've made a hundred videos and they all have, you know, 56 views on YouTube, the problem is probably that there's something about the videos that makes them just not that tier of content to get shared on YouTube. And similarly with, I would say other, you know, social media and things like that. If you are making tons of content, you're doing it regularly and it's not building an audience the way that you'd like, um, then you have to kind of think about, okay, what could I do to make this better? Or what could I do to make it um, more compelling? That's usually the word I like to use is compelling. That mm -hmm. it's just something that people just love. And if you can make stuff that people love and you can build an audience, I think a lot of people focus too much on building courses early. Um, I've made that mistake in the past, but honestly, if you have an audience, monetizing it is not a problem. Uh, mm. Unless your audience is like weirdly unmonetizable. Um, if you're in like language learning or if you're offering people any practical advice and you have, you know, 100,000 subscribers on YouTube, you'll find a way to make money. But if you have... 50 people on YouTube and you're trying to do it, uh, then it doesn't really matter how great your course is. You're not going to sell. So I think focusing on the front end, focusing on that first is, is probably where I'd start. Yeah. Great. Well, Scott, thank you very much. If people want to learn more about you and about your book, where can it go? Yes. Go to uh, scotthyoung.com. Uh, you can find the book on audible, Amazon, anywhere where books are sold these days. And 
Um, you can also read, I have over 1400 articles. Uh, I think I just posted the 1400th article on my website. So there's quite a bit of stuff you can read. Uh, even if you don't want to uh, give me any money, there's quite a bit of free stuff there. Yeah, great. Scott, thank you very much. And uh, yeah, looking forward to, to finishing your book, actually. I'm not done thank yet. You. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Let me know how it ends. Want to learn how you can grow your language business or maybe meet us at one of our upcoming events? Then go to our website, langpreneur.com. Thanks for listening and see you in the next episode.